thing you see your outline in the back of the bulletin is going to be Genesis chapter 6. And obviously, as I mentioned, we are in the Advent season, and so it would be worthwhile for some of you to think, if we're going to be doing the Christmas season, why is he going to Genesis? Why would he be doing this? Well, it just doesn't work very well to start in the middle of a story. If, if you, you, you all have been in this situation before where there's some ladies or some men, and we're having a conversation, and you know you're actually talking about something, and then a, a, another person comes in, and they try to join in in the conversation. Sometimes that works okay. Sometimes that doesn't work okay at all. It's like you're just not knowing what they're talking about, or you say, well, well I, my suggestion is say, yeah, yeah, we, we already entertained that suggestion a little while ago. You know, you weren't here. You didn't hear the conversation. Or if, if you say, you know, this, this is a really, really good book. Right now, I'm, I've kind of taken on reading this book, and it's kind of slow going, but I'm plowing my way through. It's like 1,500 pages, no, no pictures. It's on the biography of uh, George Washington. I like pictures. I like maps, too. <clears throat> but anyway, so I got this thing. Well, if I gave you this book, and it's like a halfway through, say, you know, you ought to start here. It's really good. Don't you say, yeah, but I'm missing all this stuff where he came from and where he was raised and born, and it can be tough to go into the middle of a conversation. Uh, on more of a personal note, here several months ago, men, just extend a little grace here, okay? Especially men, is Sal and I went to a movie. It was called Downton Abbey. Yeah, it's, on, it's the first cousin to a girl flick, okay? It, it, it's not horrible. It's, it's, pretty, it's got some good things. So I'm in this movie, and... It really is, is quite good. And I'm sitting there, and Sal's leaning over. She goes, that person's really nasty. I go, oh, okay, okay. So that person is wonderful. It's just wonderful. The point is, she's trying to fill me in on this story, which is really complex with all the interrelationships and all this going on. And I dropped right in the middle of it. And I'm having a tough time navigating this. So what did that mean? We started from the very beginning at home, and we watched them all the way through. And... And you can't even begin to tell you all the intricacies and all the relationships and all this because it would be dropping you in the middle. My point in saying all of this, whether it be a book, whether it's a conversation, whether it's a movie or a series, is it's the same thing with the story, the Christmas story, is the baby in the manger is absolutely important, but it's halfway through the story. You're already halfway through the story, so... Why do we have a baby in a manger? What's the big deal? So you start all the way back to Genesis, where it tells you the beginning of the Christmas story. And if you start with the baby in the manger, you can say, why the celebration songs, the celebratory songs of the angels? Why, why did they have that? Why the fearful anticipation of the shepherds? Why was there in the inquisitive journey of the kings? Why? But what's the purpose of all of this if you just drop into the manger? So we're going to go to the, the very beginning. And the story of the manger, you'd want to say, if you wanted to take something away from the message today and just kind of encapsulate it into a line, the story of the manger is actually rooted in the grief of the heart of God. That is the story of the manger. And so we're going to be taking a look at Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verse 5, and we're going to be reading a couple verses. 
and it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So we're going to take a couple, and we're going to read more of the passage as we go along, but we're going to start there. If you don't understand the grief of the heart of God in the manger, manger story, you won't understand the glory of the story. It'll just be a baby in a manger. Why was the Lord sorry, and it says sorry and grieved, that he had made man on the earth? What would bring such grief to the heart of God? And the words grieved or sorry strongly imply a personal affront. It strongly uh, implies a betrayal, a betrayal that is so significant that literally it brought tears to the heart of God. Well, if you look at verse 5, what was it? It was the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If we do not understand that tragedy and the sadness of the relational breakdown that man had with God, then you really won't understand how important the manger scene is. So why were we created? In the beginning, we were created to love, to love God. And that's, that goes without saying, I think all of you know that. But when we were originally created, we were hardwired to look at God, and he had the authority. We recognized his existence. We recognized how grand he was. We served him with our time and energy. That's what we did. To summarize, and there is in Luke, and I'll be probably addressing that a little later, is what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your might. Your mind, rather, not might, mind. That is the greatest commandment. So, why were we created? To love God. But this obedience... I think you all know disobedience is not a technical submission to the boundaries that God has set. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, it is a joy to stay in the boundaries. It's not a legalistic thing where, oh, I have to do this, otherwise I'm falling out of favor with God, or I can't do that, or I have... It works both ways. I have to do this, or I can't do that. If you love God as you were originally wired to love God, it is a joy to be within those boundaries, and you don't want to be outside of the boundaries. But things changed. All of us were originally wired to love God, but clearly that wiring got short-circuited. When Adam and Eve fell, obviously things changed. I'm going to give you example of something of how this wiring, I am not a wiring guy at all, but I, you, my, I put up a yard light and the yard light stayed on all the time. Well, there was a little addition that had to be done on this thing. It's just a little eye that allows, that tells, tells the, the light when it's dark, come on, when it's light, shut off. Well, I put, put the one on, the original one, and I had a little teeny washer and it was going by this wire and I went, that washer will slide right by the wire. True, not true. It went, <laughs> there's sparks all over the place, and it just took a, just a tiny little bit of the wire, and it was just gone. It just, <laughs> it was cut. 
The whole thing is useless. It was just a little piece. So I got another one. I put it in. It works fine. That is what happened in the Garden of Eden, is there was a short circuit, and there was, a, like you might say, a big spark, and it melted a little section of the wire that was originally connected us to our Savior. We had close and deep communion, and when they ate of the forbidden fruit, it's like there was a short circuit, and it went, <clears throat> and it's broke, and it's always broke, unless something is going to come along to fix it. In my case, I got another part that doesn't work with human relationships. That's what happened. So the wiring changed. Now, going outside of the boundaries, maybe making an overstatement, but for many people, it's a joy to, to live outside of the boundaries of God and to live my life and to do what I want to. It's fun. Whereas before, we wanted to stay in those boundaries. We loved and we enjoyed to stay in the boundaries. Not so anymore. The, the uh, summary of the law is like I said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The root command is to love God. Now, I wanna, I'm going to make a, Sal and I saw, we laughed our heads off, and this is really good, is we watch TV sometimes, and sometimes I'll see something, and go, Sal, Sal, you've got to see this, or she'll say, hey, 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 i got to see, which insinuates, clearly, she has a TV, and I have a TV, I got that. But, well, and we had, there was this dog show, okay, and it was professionals, they, they would run these dogs through a circuit, and they would, they would do different things, and folks, I can't say it strongly enough, those dogs were possessed. They loved to do what they were asked to do. And they, some of the things they do is, like from me to Amy, they'd have a, a, little, a little metal pole, a metal pole, a metal pole, all the way to Amy. And they would go like this through those metal Only they would go lightning fast. And they're just, they're just loving this, and they are doing everything for the master. Their eye, one eye is on that master, and that master's hands are going like this, and they're just responding, just like, and they're just lightning fast. My point is, they are obsessed with obeying their master. That is, that is their whole life. That's all they want to do. They're, they're just vibrating, ready to go. And we were, we were laughing, like, these dogs are something else. Not only are they fast and they're good, but they are really, really zoned in on their master. And if I were to cross that bridge and say, and that's how we should be with God, you'd go, break. I'm not that way with anything because our wiring got changed. It got changed. And so now you go, oh, oh wait a minute, I'm not going to be that obsessed about anything, let alone God. No, 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 no. I'm not going to have everything that I do, everything that I think and my emotions and my actions are all going to be devoted to the Savior. Nah, <laughs> no. I'm not going to do that. It's a little extreme. Here's the deal. I told you how we were originally wired and now how we are currently wired. But the deal is we're still wired. We're still wired. And the, the, the fact is, just because we may no longer love God like we should does not mean that we don't love something because we do. We love something. We are hardwired to be a lover of something. We are. And you could say that hardwired thing is you have copper wire 
And sometimes if you touch two, two wires together, you'll see a big spark and a lot of times the breaker goes. But those wires are still there. They don't melt. They don't melt. They, they may have a little scar on them, a little bit of char on them, but they don't go away, which is, which is the part of us that, yes, we've been rewired, but parts of us are still there. It's scarred, but we're still there, and we are wired to love something. So what are we loving? If you're not loving God, we are giving that love to someone or something else. But it just doesn't evaporate. We're all lovers of something. We're either lovers of God and or we're lovers of someone or something else. What we feel pretty good as believers is I'm a pretty good believer. I am not fully devoted to God. I like to divide it up. And I'll give him the majority, but then there's other things that I want to do myself. I want to indulge in these different things, and we all do it. That is the change that we've had. Referring back to the Genesis passage, what is it that is so seductive, so powerful, and so deceptive that it has the possibility to replace the love of God for the, for the love of something else? The Genesis passage, what, what is there? What is it that men would would have wickedness in their heart continually. What it is, is love of self. Love of self is what we all do. Uh, if, if you didn't know it, I'll tell you now for full disclosure, I do not for a moment buy into the self-esteem movement that's been going on for 30 years. It's, you know, they just feel bad about themselves. There's nobody we feel better about than ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We have self-interests. And I'm going to look at this later on of the things that we do, whether it be in marriage or relationships or neighborhoods or whatever. We are very vested in ourselves. And some people, they come across as self-harm. I get that. But it's still about them. It's still about them because they want something. It's me, me, and I. But don't give me your hate mail yet. Let me finish. <clears throat> the, it, it says in, uh, Paul states in 2 Corinthians verse 5, verse 14, it says, the, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all and that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So what does love of self look like? Well, we're the center of the world. Is what I want is what I want. Let me give you an example of what this looks like uh, in Scripture in Isaiah 14, starting out at verse 12, and you'll guess real quick who I'm talking about. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on his mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave in the depths of the pit. Who am I talking about? Satan. That's right. One of God's most glorious creations, he said, I will do this, and I will do this, and I will be this. And that is 
exactly what is in my heart if you see the bottom of your heart. That is what we like to do. We like to be the sovereign over our own lives. We want to set the rules. We want comfort, pleasure, and our happiness. And let's be clear, some of that's not all bad. Some of that isn't all bad. It isn't that you should ignore all of that. It's when it gets out of bounds. Love of self is not motivated by love for him. It's stepping over God's boundaries again and again. And you look around in life, whether it be the news or social media, it's all around us is love of self. Let's look at the institution of marriage. What can make a marriage so hard? What makes a marriage so hard? Ultimately, at the bottom, it's selfishness. It's I want it my way. There have been women that say in counseling, all I've ever wanted was a man who would make me happy. Well, that marriage is likely to be doomed because that husband, he should, he should cherish you, he should nurture you, he should serve you and love you, but he cannot be your source of happiness. He should do all those things. He should cherish you and love you and serve you and do all those things, encourage you and, and do all, but he can't be the source of your happiness. And if that's how a marriage is going to start, it could be tough. Then you look at parenting. We have, those of us that have kids, we have all given birth to little self-sovereigns. It's all about them. They want to write their own laws and their own rules. Have you ever in your entire life heard a child say, Dad, if you just give me more rules, if you would exercise more authority in my life, I would feel so secure. No, if that kid, I'd like to see who it is. Because oftentimes it's the other way, is I want more freedom. I don't know why I have to do this. In fact, I've got to tell you just a little segue since I'm up here talking. If you want to come up here and talk, you can. You can hear your story. My granddaughter, she's how old Waverly? Five? Five. Okay. And Katie said, Waverly, go get your coat or something like this. She goes, do I have to do everything around here? <laughs> and Katie's like, <laughs> okay, we all gave birth to little self-sovereigns. Oh, yes, I want it my way, and why do I have to do this chore or that chore? And even the littlest things, you go, are you kidding me? We do everything for you, and you complain and drag your feet about this. Yeah, there was once a story. There was once a story about a family, they were heading out on a road trip, and it was a relatively wrong, long road trip, and if you want to experience the depravity of kids and yourself, go on a long road trip. And I knew when we were going to California to Disneyland, and we made it to, we made it to Fairhaven Exit. We go, are we almost there? Oh, oh, oh. We are going to drop some kids off before we get there. We are not going to make this. And he's like, don't touch me, don't touch me. And she's looking at me. Okay, this is, this is who we are. This is where we are. Well, anyway, here's the story. One of the boys had some polyps in his nose, and he would wheeze when he'd breathe. And it was a bit distracting, and he was sitting in the back next to his sister, and the sister looked at the dad and says, Dad, 
Ethan is bothering me. And I says, well, what's he doing? He says, he's breathing. He says, well, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, tell him to stop. My brother is respirating, and if he could just stop that, my life would be so much better. In other words, he could just die, because it would make me feel so much better. And as funny I read that, I went, oh boy, is, there's, there's a, a, a little bit of truth to that. As funny as that is, every act of murder and violence is rooted in self-love, every single one. Every moment of greed is rooted in self-love. Every kind of gossip is rooted in self-love. Every bit of disobedience to parents is rooted in self-love. And every moment of adultery is rooted in self-love. It's I want to do what I want to do. The evil of the world has happened because we no longer love God as we should. Think about the time. Just think about the time when you may have loved someone, and I mean you loved them deeply, and they turned their back on you. It could be relational, it could be marital, it could be whatever. It could be a, a parent-child. You love them deeply, and they turned their back on you, and you felt betrayed. They set their love on someone else. Could you say, was your heart broken? That is an idea, just an idea of the grief and the sorrow that God experienced when the intentions of man were evil all the time. I had at one time where I had a, uh, a couple come in, into my office for counseling, and I am strongly of the opinion that it took a journey for them to get where they were happy in their marriage to where they came in to see me. There's whatever amount of time, they're, I call it, in the tank. One day they were happy, now they're in the tank. There was a journey to get there. And you just don't snap your fingers and everything's fine. There's a journey to get out. Okay? So it's a journey to get down in the gutter or where they were, and it's a journey to get out. And I always want to have them verbally affirm that they're in it for the journey. Meaning, will you do whatever it takes to restore this relationship with your spouse? Are you in? Or are we just going to play like we're in and we'll meet two or three times and then I'm out of here? Let's just, let's just cut through the fog. Do you want this relationship to be restored and you're willing to put in the time and the work to do it? And this couple was here and the guy was avoiding me and I, I know guys really well. I know women here as well. If I knew one, that'd be good enough. But I, I know guys really, I did point at you, Sal, you uh, I know guys really well, and this guy was avoiding the question. And I says, John, I says, I've asked you once, but I'll ask you again. Are you all in on this? I need to know. And he avoided the question. And so I, I waited an appropriate amount of time. I'm not exceptionally patient, but I okay, we'll let him, we'll let him process this. And I asked him again, I says, before we, before we start doing all this, if we're going to do this journey of getting your marriage restored, are you all in? And he looked at me and he goes, nope, I'm out. And he got up and he walked out. And that was a declaration right then and there that don't love you, we're done. I'm getting a divorce. And he did. But we saved ourselves a whole lot of time. My point in telling you this, that gal that was left behind was so broken 
and so shook up, she just, she was shaking uncontrollably and violently. And I let her take all the time she needed, and we kind of talked about this. Didn't ever saw her again. But the guy was, nope, I'm out. I said to you a little earlier, think about the time when you may have loved someone and they turned their back on you. They betrayed you and set their love on someone else. It is traumatic. There is no other way to say it. It is harsh, harsh stuff. And I've seen it firsthand. Maybe you have experienced it firsthand. God understands that every sin is vertical. Rarely, if ever, is there a purely horizontal sin, meaning if we forget him or refuse to love him or reject his presence, his glory and authority, that is a horizontal sin. Remember David? We had a series on David. He's confessing his sin of murder and adultery when he killed Uriah the Hittite and took Bathsheba, he says, against you and you only have I done this. What David is saying is, my failure wasn't first that I didn't love Bathsheba and Uriah as I should. That wasn't his first sin. God was his failure. He didn't love God as he should have. And when he didn't love God as he should have, he was able to do all these horrendous things. And when we do whatever those horrendous things are, it's because first and foremost, we don't love God as we should, because if we did, we would back off and we wouldn't do it. Our focus would be totally different. So how does, we God, how does God respond to the sin of man? God goes on in Genesis 6, verse 7, says, So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Don't you hate it when you're watching a movie and you're expecting a good ending and it's an hour and a half or two hours and you leave and you go, shoot, that'll be two hours, I'll never get back. I was hoping it would be a good ending and it was just a downer. It's just, I can't believe this. And you kind of go, Ugh. well, God created this world, and he had intentions for this world, and it ended that everybody that breathed the breath of life was killed, was, was destroyed. God had the right to wipe the earth clean because he was the creator of it. It was a holy and a righteous justice that sent the waters and the floods that cleaned the earth. He was not displaying unrighteous anger. But... You'll see the last part of Genesis, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you see that Noah, he was blessed. Noah's descendants were blessed. If you look in Genesis 6, it's when you start turning the pages, and you look, and you see you get all the way to Genesis 10, and it's what's called the Table of Nations, and you see a whole bunch of names, and very few of them are you familiar with, except one. You are really familiar with one is Abraham. Abram or Abraham and it was through the line of Abraham that Jesus Christ eventually came. So, if we take another look at Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all of the time. Our problem is not a behavioral problem. Like if we would just act 
better, we'd be okay. It is not a behavioral problem, because then all we have to do is just reform ourselves, and we'd be good. Just reform ourselves, and you'd, you'd, you'd be fine. What we like to think is that my biggest, deepest problem in life are outside of me. They're not inside of me. Wrong thinking, but that's what we like to think, is the problems are outside of me. My problems and situations, locations, and relationships are not me, it's them. Look at the current protests. Are there not protests in Hong Kong? We see protests in front of the Supreme Court. We see it at the White House. We see it in, in uh, we have it in Bellingham. So, yeah, they're all over the place of protests. And one of the things that protesters love to do is they go, aha, you're the problem, not me. You're the problem, and they protest something. However, at the base of all those problems, what do you find? Find us. It's all us. Let me take the, the case of a bad marriage again. They say, you know, they've got a bad marriage. There has never been something to my marriage that does not concern me. It's not science, like I have a bad marriage and I don't have anything to do with it. It's just this bad marriage. No, no, no. Everything to do with a bad marriage has to do with one or two of the people in the marriage doing bad things. That's why it's a bad marriage. So I'd, they say, well, I'm going to leave this spouse and I'm going to get me another spouse. And the problem is you take you along with it. And it goes to the next one and you've got you at the next one. And I have told people even that have what you could call a biblical divorce, I says, whoa, whoa, bear in mind. You may have been what we could call the innocent party on this, but whatever friction or whatever this you brought to that original relationship, if you don't strongly address, you will bring it to the very next relationship. And haven't you heard it says, you know, this guy just can't pick women. You know, he just gets, this is on his fourth marriage. He just can't pick women. I go, oh, no, 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 no. He is bringing all of his stuff to the next relationship. So it's, this is it's a bad marriage. Well, the commonality is there's us at the bottom of the, of the bad marriage. Or you can say there, <coughs> excuse me, there's such a thing as a dangerous neighborhood. That does not exist as stated. Dangerous neighborhoods never did anything. Neighborhoods never hurt anybody. Why are neighborhoods dangerous? Because there are people in the neighborhood who do evil, violent, and dangerous things. And at the bottom of dangerous neighborhoods are us. It's people. That's what they are. So you say, we have a corrupt government. The institution itself is not the problem. The people are the problem in the government who use their power for personal gain and don't actually exercise their authority for the welfare of the people. What is at the bottom of a corrupt government? Us. It's us. So we like to think that our problems are outside of us. There's somebody else, it's some other location, it's some other relationship when it's us. We're the ones. We find, I've, I've, you have undoubtedly had the same thing. You find people that they are having difficulties, so they say, well, what I'll do is I'll move to another community. And that way I'll have better neighbors and I'll have better people. Or I, I have this at my work, so what I need to do is I need to quit this job and get another job because those people are, <laughs> the problems are outside of me. It's them, but they take 
themselves to another job, and then they have friction again. They go, well, I don't know, my employer, my bosses are a real pain. Well, the commonality here is that person is the commonality. So, our problem is a problem of the heart. It's the control center of every human being. And if you look at, there are, there are several passages, but Luke chapter 6 says it very clearly. One moment, just about there. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. It is inside of me, and it is inside of you. That is the problem. The heart is the control center of the body. I taught a class, I've taught several classes, and I think Sal helped me with this one, is there was a book by Ted Tripp, and it was called Shepherding the Heart of a, of a Child. The, the sum total of that whole book is you can talk about disciplining and having restrictions and doing all that you do, but here's the thing. The arrow in this book is go for the heart. We all know you can behaviorally modify an adult or a kid. You can make them do A, B, and C. You can make them do it. Once you're gone, they go, I'll do what I want. You can make them sit down and eat their vegetables. And inside, they are standing ramrod straight. And I'll do what I want to do as soon as you're out of my life. So I always go, what are you accomplishing? You're just delaying the inevitable. You go for the heart. You go for a change of heart. And it's the same with adults. You can allow yourself for a period of time to put yourself in a position, whether it's here in the audience or in a Bible study, you will allow yourself to be put in a position where you will be told what to do and you will be trained and whatever that looks like. But if they don't have your heart, you'll put up with it for a while and you go, hmm, that's just not my cup of tea. I don't think I, don't think I want to do that. Or you'll find a reason. You'll find a reason. The bottom line is they don't have your heart. Turn it, turn it to the other side of the coin. If an employer, if a coach, if a pastor, if a friend, if they have your heart, you know exactly what that looks like. It is a wonderful thing because they're all in. They want to do this because they want to do it. And that's what you need to aim for. And we've done that, that class. It was all about Shepherding the heart of a child is to capture their thoughts and affections from their heart and not just get behavioral modifications. That's only going to last for a little while. So we are rescued via redemption. This, I started out by saying if you do not understand the story of the manger is actually rooted in the grief of the heart of God, you will not appreciate the manger. But the manger was the response to what had happened in Genesis 6, where the, the inclinations of man was for evil all the time. And God said, there is someone that I'm going to select. And he had saved Noah and his family, and he blessed his descendants. And Abraham came onto the scene, and Abraham had a descendants. And we see the Old Testament, and it all comes all the way through. And by and by, the Son of God is born in Bethlehem as a response to the rebellion of the world 
14 in Genesis 6. So the message we've just given you starts at the beginning of the story. It progresses through and says, why do we have the baby in the manger? Because of Genesis 6. That's where it all started. And Christ, in his grace, provided redemption. He didn't have to. He could have killed everybody, as well as Noah and his family. He could have. And he would have been within his right to do that, his righteous right to do it. But he didn't. He provided a way out. So now you look at how would you feel if somebody betrayed you? If somebody walked away from your marriage or your relationship and now transfer that to the heart of God that was grieved because of the evil intentions of man, and in spite of that, he sent his baby, his son, Jesus Christ, for the expressed purpose of suffering on a cross and dying. Think about that. You've been slighted. Probably every one of us have been slighted in some way. We've been betrayed, and it hurt, and it hurt a lot. And maybe it even hurts to this day. Magnify that infinitely by the whole world walked away from God, and in spite of that, he was willing to send his son. So this Christmas season, when you think about the baby in a manger, think about the heart of God that he would send a baby in spite of all that nasty stuff that was done directly to him in Genesis. Even in spite of that, he said, yeah, I'll send my son. Next week, we're going to be talking more as we get close to the, the Christmas season. We're going to talk about the significance of Bethlehem, the significance of the baby born in, in a manger. But for now, know that the story of the manger is rooted in the heart of God where he loved us so much that he's willing to send his son. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the Christmas message, and every year it comes by, and there's always a strong temptation to get caught up in the commercialism of Christmas and all the glitz and the lights, and, and all that's wonderful. The wonder that kids see in Christmas, it's all wonderful and it's new, but may we be strongly grounded in the fact that your Savior came in spite of being rejected in Genesis 6, in spite of being betrayed and the inclinations of our heart were evil all the time. And in spite of that, you sent your Son. And what amazing grace that is for us. And we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.